Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. But, you know, the endurance of foster care has made me, it's, it's not really always the talent. You know, in Hollywood, they'll say it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know what I mean? It's really the pressure I put in the moments that I was home, when I was homeless, trying to get a place, before I got a place to stay, basically. I put a lot of pressure on it I, I would, every single day. If it was free work, but it involved the correct people who can get me into the right room. I was there on time and 30 minutes to an hour early waiting with a smile like, oh, y'all not here yet. OK, I'm in the front, you know, and I, and it was I was thirsty. You know, I think that anybody who wants to make it needs to be thirsty. You don't know how to you don't even have to be an editor. I wasn't even an editor. I wasn't even an animator. You know what I mean? But the person that seen that I was a rapper and a singer, they seen I was thirsty. They seen I, I would put on that pressure. They see I would show up on time. When we made the movie, I showed up on time and I always had something to say. I always had input. You also want to have input. You don't want to be the person with a shadow, just a shadow in the corner. You want to be the person that has to be a spotlight sometimes. And sometimes it's uncomfortable though. I could definitely say I've been uncomfortable multiple times just speaking my piece. But every single time I was uncomfortable, even like I'll say a week ago, They've always thanked me for my input and said I was needed. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast, and today Jane Amelia speaks with Jeremy Buchanan. Jeremy is a foster alum who was raised in Illinois, Georgia, and California. He moved around a lot as a kid and attended more than six elementary schools. He was first placed in foster care as a young boy and then again as a teenager when he became a runner, as he says. Not one of his many foster homes were good to him or for him, but by sheer will and determination and with good mentors, he eventually fought for himself. Jeremy developed his talent as a rapper and a musician, and he's now a filmmaker too. Here's Jeremy Buchanan. Okay. Hey, I'm here with Jeremy Buchanan. Hey, hey, Jeremy. Hey, how you doing? I'm well, and thanks for taking the time to do this. I'm really interested to hear your story. I only know a little bit so far, and I know that the people listening to this are really going to benefit from hearing about your experience and who you are and what you're about. Let's just go. Where are you from? How were you raised? So I'm from Springfield, Illinois. I was raised in the country city, very small town, but it was the capital, so I learned a lot about Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, but then, right. <laughs> um, yeah. But then uh, I moved to Georgia at a very young age, I think around like seven years old or something like that. I was really young. Um, I moved back to Illinois to live with my cousin Karen, 
moved with my grandma from my cousin Karen's house. Then I moved to Los Angeles from there because my mom came to pick us both up, both my grandma and me. And I've been living in L.A. since I was 13 years old. I experienced foster care in Illinois. I mean, sorry, in um, Atlanta, Georgia, as well as uh, California. Right. So didn't you say that you went to three different elementary schools because you were going from state to state to state? Yes. Yes. So I went to elementary in Georgia. I went to elementary in um, Illinois. And I went to elementary in L.A. I went to fifth grade in L.A. That was the last stop. (laughs) But um, I actually went to like six different elementaries wow. because of that. Yeah, because there was a lot of back and forth from Georgia to Illinois. I kind of get lost. Right. Going back and forth. Right. If you could choose now, where would you have stayed? For my childhood? Yeah. Man, I would have stayed in Georgia, actually. Really? For my hmm. childhood. Yeah. Because Illinois, the weather is too much snow. You know what I mean? Georgia is too much rain, but I mean, I could deal with that. But yeah, for like in LA is just too much in general. Yeah, just it's just too much. Gangs, the <laughs> drugs, the the music. It was just too. I wouldn't even be a rapper. I think if I never came to LA, really, I'd be like, somebody. yeah, I would have <laughs> been like a totally other guy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so, why were you moving all around? I know it was because of your mom, but well, so my mom, uh, she actually had a dream when she was around that age. I forgot how old she was. She was a singer and a rapper as well. So. The first time that I moved away from my mother was so she can, you know, pursue her dreams in a way. And I moved with my cousin, Karen. But besides that, for me going from Georgia back to Illinois, besides that, my mom, she she likes to travel just like my grandma likes to travel. I like to travel. We just kind of hopped around the country just to kind of like experience new things. Right. But then how'd you end up in foster care? Now, foster care, the first time I went to foster care was in Illinois. So my brother and my sister, who were the older, the older boy and the older girl, they were acting up, you know, and my mom couldn't handle it. So she called the L.A. Police Department, or sorry, the Georgia Police Department. So when she called the police department, they took all of us. In Georgia, they have a law that they don't take one kid, which is, I think, should be overturned. They take all the kids. So we all had to experience foster care. Because they they deemed that she couldn't take care of none of us because she couldn't take care of one of us. But then in L.A. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So in Los Angeles was a bit of way dramatically different story. So like I said, my mother came to Illinois to come get me and my grandma to move us to California. But first she brought me to meet my father. So I came to California, met my father. I'm sure we're going to get into that. And then... Once we moved to California, I was paying rent, working with Art Network, and it was getting so stressful. She threatened me with a two-by-four. She told me to leave the house. So when she told me to leave, she told me, get the F out of my house. Get the fuck out of my house, right? So I took that as leave. Like, I thought she was literally kicking me out. So I started becoming a runaway. So the first time you run away, you know, you become a runner. So I was running away way too much. I was being called a runaway, you know, and then I lied about my address, when I lied about my address, they took me to my old address and they found out nobody lived there. The people upstairs was like, you know, we'll take care. We'll, we'll take care of him. They must have left. But the cops was like, no. And then I tried to get my grandma where she was at staying in the shelter. And of course, the shelter didn't let us um, look for my grandma. So uh, they took me to foster care. That's when I went to my first temporary foster home. OK, so. All right. Let me just let me just back up a little bit. So. The first time you came to L.A. was to meet your dad. So what 
Yes. What was that like? That, that this is the first time so you've ever seen him. The your- first time I came to LA to meet my dad, it actually really opened my eyes. At first, I thought my dad was like a deadbeat father. He didn't want to be in my life and stuff like that. But then, like, I actually got to meet this guy. So we met up with him. He was happy to see me. You know, I mean, he was buying stuff. He was getting my hair cut. He was feeding us. He even gave us a little money. But at the very end of it, um, my mom asked for some more money. And then my dad was like, you know, I can't afford it. I just did this, that, and the third for you, like getting a haircut and stuff like that. And he was like, I can't give you no more. So he was trying to take us home. My mom was like, oh, we could just walk home. So he said, okay. You know what I mean? At that point, he ain't trying to argue in front of his son. He just met. He said, okay. So we got out the car. And as we got out the car, I wanted to get back in the car, to be honest. But as we got out the car, they start arguing about how he's such a bad person. And he was trying to leave at this point. He's like, I'm about to leave. So he started rolling up the window, right? As he rolled up the window, my mom puts her hand in the window. The window catches my mom's finger. And now she's telling me, because she's hurt now, she's telling me about how he's abusive towards her, how he's a deadbeat father. And I'm like, I was literally here now. You can't just lie to me about my father wanting to see me. So, you know, it really opened my eyes to see, like, my mom was a manipulator at that point. Like, she just wasn't telling the truth. Right, because you discovered that your dad wanted you in his life. He had been looking for you, right? And he'd been trying to make contact. He'd been trying to call my mom. I even uh, discovered years later that he broke into my cousin Karen house when we, when uh, we was in Illinois. He broke into my cousin Karen house and went to jail over trying to see me. Wow, like, really? Broke, I mean, I'm sorry. He broke into my mother's house, but it was some um, arguments over cousin my cousin Karen. I'm sorry. He broke into my mother's house trying to see me and went to jail. All right, over so, that. All right, so let me ask you: When you said you were working for Art Network, tell me what that really meant. Because it, you weren't really so working. So Art Network right? was an organization. It was an organization that was based on helping kids get instruments for their schools. That's what I thought it was when she first introduced it to me. But what happened was we was actually paying rent, eating, you know, buying clothes and everything. So I didn't know none of this. I thought that she had a job because I went to school, you know, for like eight hours a day, came home and then, oh, I guess she's done work too, you know. So, uh she asked me a question. She was like, do you think I should get a job? Because she used to abuse me um, over me not paying or not getting enough money a day. Because I used to get $100 to $300 a day asking for donations through the Art Network. I'd be like, hi, my name is Jeremy Buchanan. And I'm with the Art Network and blah, blah, blah. We need a donation. So, you know, she used to hit me when I didn't get enough money for that. So one day she asked, she was like, Jeremy, you think I should get a job because, um, you know, you haven't been making enough money. I tell her, yeah, of course we should get a job. You know, I didn't even know you didn't have a job. You know what I mean? And then. um, Right. So it was really you going door to door asking for donations. In Illinois, when we was, when she first came to Illinois to um, to my grandma's house, she was like, hey, you want to try this out with me? You know, it'll be fun. And I said, yeah. She said, I can stop anytime I want to. So, I, you know, I, I agree. We was going door to door in Illinois. Once we uh, came to meet my father in L.A., you know, I guess she's seen the success in L.A. because it was way more successful in L.A. We actually moved out here. Now we live in L.A., so um, I had to go to school, right? But every single night, we was up until 3 a.m., so my grades were horrible. I had all Fs, but she used to whoop me for having bad grades, and she used to whoop me for not making enough money. So I'm not making enough money. I'm getting a whooping. I'm not getting enough grades. I'm not getting a whooping. So one night came, you know, I guess I didn't, I guess I was making her mad. I don't remember what I did that night, but I know I wasn't cussing her out. I wasn't talking back or nothing. 
it has something to do with donations, right? She said that she was going to hit me with this two by four. It was like this wooden stick and she had it in her hand, right? So I believed her. I ain't gonna lie. It scared me. I believed her. So when we got home, that's when the argument happened when she was like, get out of my house. And then um, I took that as you kicking me out. Then I start running away. Right. And then you became a runner, right? Then I became a runaway. Yep. So did you feel that your mom was using you? Did you feel that she loved you? Yeah. Like, once she was... told me that, once she told me she didn't even have a job, I mean, I had new clothes every week, sometimes every day. Like I would buy clothes every day. Then we was eating. We wasn't only eating McDonald's. You know what I mean? We wasn't going to no five-star restaurants at least. But we was going to like Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. You know what I mean? That's not a regular meal. Um, we was uh, staying in a very nice neighborhood. Um, when we first came to L.A., we were staying in Beverly Hills because of the Red Cross or something like that. That ended. And then now we were staying in Hollywood area. It's like Santa Monica and Western mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like we lived on Oxford and Western, basically. Yep, yep. So we stayed in. It's kind of a nicer area. It's not South Central. You get what I'm saying? And the rent if I remember correctly, was like 2800 a month that long ago. Wow. Or, or like, you know, six, my grandma right here, she was there too, but like $1,600 that long ago, somewhere between 1600 and 2800 it was a lot of money a long time ago. It was a two-bedroom apartment. It was a, We had nice stuff in the apartment, and I was paying for everything. I didn't know that until she asked me that question. I was like, what? You know, I'm like, what? You know, I'm, 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 it blew my mind because I'm seeing the receipts. I'm seeing we pay for I'm like, I didn't really care at the moment, you know, because we just I'm just a kid. But then um, once I start connecting me getting abused when I'm not making a certain amount of money where where we one time we made a hundred dollars. And this is after she told me, like you're saying, filled and used. We made a she said, Jeremy, as long as you make a hundred dollars today, we can go home. Man, I made that hundred dollars in about an hour. Right. It was like we got there at 8 a.m. and I made a hundred dollars an hour. So it was like nine o'clock in the morning. It was still like early. It was like gray in the sky. We stayed out there till 3 a.m. I mean, 3 p.m. We stayed out there till 3 p.m. and we made about $300. So it took way longer to get the other $200. So I was definitely feeling used at one point. But the anger wasn't me being feeling used because as a little man, because I lost my childhood at that point, as a little kid, I felt responsible to pay the rent. So I was okay with that. What hurt me was... She used to be abusive for me having bad grades, but you got me out here at three o'clock in the morning every single day, you know, in Hollywood, Santa Monica, South Central, Beverly Hills. And I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to get good grades, but it's like impossible. I'm sleeping in class. I'm putting my head on the table. Teacher's telling me to wake up in class because I've been out every night for seven days, 30 days straight, you know? So yes, definitely felt used. And then she had like, um this Michael Jackson thing going on back then because uh, she seen me as a star. You know what I mean? She didn't lie. I was a star. So, you know, she used to hit me for not singing opera right. You know, certain things like that. I feel like she wanted me to become something, you know, that was like using me for us to become rich at the time because we went to Disney and all kinds of stuff. And my grades was too low for like Disney. Right. So I got to was... Disney, but I got to fix my grades. You get what I'm saying? Right. So she was trying to make you a star. Yes. Right. So this art network was a 501c3. So she's getting it was a 501c3, yep. She's getting donations that really you're raising and it's not doing anything for anybody else except I seen her throw one event and that was in uh Illinois and she told me about another event which was in LA. These are two events and we made way more money than that, right? And then I didn't see her help any kids 
or none of that. All I seen was us paying rent, getting stuff done, and she would tell me where the money's going, basically, by saying what we about to go do. We was getting rental cars. You know, we always was in a rental car, so I didn't really see the money go anywhere else but those those rent, rental car, food, clothes, and little extravagant things like going to the movies. That's where the money seemed like it was going. Hundreds and hundreds to do all that stuff. Right. So you must have been pretty convincing. Yeah. Um, she gave me a script, too. So I was reading from a script that I had to repeat repeatedly. So I was pretty much an actor at that point. Right. Do you remember any of that? All I remember is, hi, my name is Jeremy Buchanan. I'm from the Art Network. That's all I can remember. But <laughs> it was such, it was like three paragraphs. I actually loved the script. Like, maybe that's what I was probably good at it. Because, like, you know, I kind of felt like I was doing something for the kids. Until I found out, you know, I was paying for everything. And I was like, oh. Okay, so you became a runner, and then once you started running, then you were flagged in the system, right? Yeah, I was put in the system because, um, you know, I gave them the wrong address. The parents wasn't there. Then they was like, you know what? If you want to go to your grandma, because I was begging to just go to my grandma, they was like, okay, where's she at? And I gave them some shelter in um, San... I forgot where she was, but I gave her a, shel- a shelter somewhere real far. And um, they drove me to the area, to the city. We stopped in some parking lot, like a Walmart parking lot. And then they called the shelter and the shelter was like, yeah, he can't come here to look for her. Then they put me right in foster care. Then we went to the, uh, I forgot where that located. Oh, the Koreans. It was in Koreatown by Wilshire, Vermont. You know, they, they closed that building down, but I'm sure a lot of kids know what I'm talking about. You know, we went there and they, and they, they, put me in the system okay so it wasn't a foster home it was like a group home with a lot of other kids oh no no that's just a that used to be the county building oh okay so the first place when they or the foster home building yeah they put you in this room um they put like they got these cassette tapes back in them days there's a whole lot of cassettes (laughs) with like disney movies like cinderella beauty and the beast you know movies like that and you have to sit in there for at least overnight because you know i came in around like 2 a.m. Right, right. So ain't no foster home going to just let you come in. You got to sign paperwork and all that. Now I know this back then I didn't. So we got like free snacks and stuff. All runaways have to go through this. Even if you leave a foster home, they don't just put you somewhere. They got to put you in this like at the actual building where your foster, um, where your social worker is. The social worker is on a whole nother floor, but there's a floor just for kids like that. I see. So and they separate you by age and stuff like that. Right. So what did you think about what was happening? Like, how did you feel? Like, what was it a relief you might go into this? I felt empowered. I felt very empowered. I felt independent. Um, like I said, I had no childhood. So I start saying like, yeah, I'm about to go to this one, that one. I didn't know the dangers as I was about to face. I actually was very open to the future at that point. And what happened? Well, um, I went to that first, the temporary foster home. Um, it was a lady with an older lady and they was real nice. It was very like a two week kind of experience. One week, one week and a half went to court. I didn't like my lawyer because everybody was trying to make me go home. Luckily the, the first social worker was on my side, but every social worker after that, I started becoming a bad person. Okay. I was all left in school at this point just because I didn't do no work. You know what I mean? Ditching and stuff like that. Different foster homes. I was getting kicked out. Got in a few fights, stuff like that. But do you want me to get tap into the dangerous part of what I'm saying with the dangers? Sure. Okay, so I came into this foster home, right? And this was probably like the fourth. I went to, they told me I went to 13 foster homes before I went to three more, right? <laughs> so I probably went to 16 foster homes, 17 
or something. But this is like about four to five foster homes before the last foster home, right? So in this foster home, these foster parents were older. They was like 60 years old. They had a son that was in his 40s, right? And his son had grandkid had kids already. And um, these foster parents used to tell my social worker that they used to give me $20 instead of going paying for a haircut to give me $20. Like they used to give me money here and there and stuff like that. But in reality, this whole foster parents were actually in debt. And the only reason why they have foster kids was to pay off their debt. And they used to tell me this stuff. They was like, look, you got to understand I can't buy you this, that, and the third because woody woo blase blase. Now, the upside of the foster home, because in that conversation, he told me, I can teach you how to cook, and the food is going to be good. So the food was amazing. I know how to make ice cream right now from scratch, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the food was great. But the downside was, like, okay, I wasn't getting no $20 every time they was getting my hair cut. But I told them, like, you keep lying to my foster, uh, my, my social worker. I'm going to stop doing chores, right? Man, they had me fixing a computer. I done deleted a virus out their computer. They had me vacuuming. They had a two-story home with about six bedrooms. I had to vacuum every bedroom. I had to dust down every... I was like a slave in there. I had to wash the dishes. I had to cook sometimes, right? But the food was good. But I had to cook sometimes. I had to do all this stuff. These people was like 60 years old. The only thing I didn't have to do was change the diaper because there was one person that had um, a stroke, so she wasn't really that good. She had to you know, take off. But I had to do everything else but change this woman's diaper, even like helping her out and take care of her with her oxygen and stuff like that. You know, that wasn't even the bad part, right? The worst part about this foster home was traumatizing me to this day. They wanted me to call them mom and pop, right? And they wanted me to call them mom and pop aggressively. So they used to press me about it, put me on punishment, uh, yell at me about it, all this kind of stuff, saying I was killing this woman because I wasn't calling her mom and dad, right? But anyway, back to the chores. That's One just day, weird. That's weird. Weird. And it was as a ch- as a child who loves his mother and father, because even though I ran away from my mom, that's my mama. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I, that It was to traumatize me. And they used to question my religion a lot in there because they was Jehovah Witness. You know what I mean? So me and him, I'm a Christian too. So me and him used to have this debate. He used to debate with a with a, with a a 16-year-old or a 13-year-old between 16, I'm sorry, the years are always off. But between those years, he used to debate with me about God as a Jehovah Witness to try to change my religion, that's off too. You know, as a foster kid, I'm going to let you know right now, you have a right to your religion. It is constitutional. Even if you was a Muslim in that Christian home, they cannot convert you from being a Muslim into a Christian. That is against your rights. Then that's messing with your um, mental. That's messing with, you're going to need a therapist because of that. So get out of that foster home. Make sure you tell the court about that. Tell your judge, tell your lawyer. My social worker wouldn't listen to me. I told her about all of that. She used to say, like, no, you're just being ungrateful. She thought I was a liar. So she used to think I was lying about everything. So anyway, back on one day, I told him I ain't going to do no more chores because you keep lying to my uh, social worker saying you give me money every week, which is allowance. They used to make everybody get allowance. They wasn't giving me no allowance, and they wasn't giving me no $20 every time they cut my hair. Right? So I told him I'm not doing no more chores. You're not giving me allowance or nothing. I'm done. So one faithful day. I was hanging out with the 40-year-old son's kids. We watched Spider-Man 3 on TV. <laughs> they said, take out the trash. I'm like, I'm not taking out the trash. We've already had this conversation, right? He comes into the room while I'm sitting next to his son and chokes me. He puts his hands on my neck and starts choking me, right? I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't talk, nothing. And then um, the only reason why he stopped choking me was because 
you can hear the actual six-year-old foster parents saying, hey, hey, because, of course, I'm making commotion. I'm kicking it. The kids are screaming because he's choking me to death. So once he stopped choking me, I tried to tell the foster parent what happened because he didn't see what happened. Once he started screaming, he stopped choking me. So I tell the foster, he's like, you're lying, right? So I run away. I'm already a runaway at this point. Go outside, jump the fence. But I told myself, I'm not a runaway no more. At that point, it was an addiction, and I was running from foster home. Like I said, I've been to 13, 17 maybe. I, you know, I was running away too much. So I told myself, I'm going to stop running away. So I went to a pay phone, and I, and I called 911. A sheriff comes, picks me up. I tell him the story in the back of the police car. Once I give him the address, the male police, it was a male and a female police officer, a black one that was a male and a Latino was a female. The black police officer, he's like, oh, this address is familiar, right? So we go to the address. We get out the car. The brother, the guy who chokes me walks outside and shakes this guy's hand in full embrace. They know each other. So, so I go in the house. I start crying, right? I'm starting to sob up a little bit. Like, what is going on? You know, so then they, the police officers take me directly to my bedroom after they have a little conversation about how they know each other and they got this and he's going to get away with it. Basically, they had a whole conversation in front of me about he's not going to get charged. They're going to act like I'm just talking all of this in front of the female officer, all of that. So they take me to the room. I'm sobbing at this point because I ran away and I call the cops and they just take me right back to my abuser. I'm in the room crying. The female officer is like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I know that they really did this to you, but I can't do nothing about it, which was wrong on her part because all she had to do was call the supervisor, right? The sheriff's department is pretty rude compared to the LAPD, but they can still call their supervisor. So, yeah, I was just in that foster home until I told the court, like I'm telling the kids on this, just listening to this podcast. I told the court and I, and I told enough people like my lawyer told my social worker, told social worker don't want to believe me again, guys. Once I kept telling people. They did an investigation to the foster home and moved me out of there. And I don't know if he went to jail or not. I think he still got away with it. I want to ask you something because I hear this a lot. Why do you think people don't believe kids in care? Why, why is that? Because in general, people believe little kids or even right. kids. Why is that? I think what I think it is is because... What they focus on is a lie in general, right? So I ditched from school. You ask me if I went to school today, and I say yes. They're comparing that lie to somebody getting raped, right? Somebody just touched me. He lies so much about going to school, he must be lying about that. Then they look at us like, we don't look at us as humans sometimes. It depends on the foster home. Like that foster home specifically looked at me as a dollar sign. My my social worker looked at me as a, as a number. You get what I'm saying? So they needed me to stay in a foster home. This foster home, they seem to have good reviews. I'm lying about ditching at this foster home. So now they're comparing me lying about ditching here, me lying about clothes here. Uh, he must just be a liar. But that's why I think it happens, honestly. But what they need to change is investigation. Just because you think somebody lying, it still isn't, just like a cop still has to investigate a crime, whether they're lying or not. You got to invest a crime, whether they're lying or not. And yeah, there could be some repercussions behind if they're actually lying, but it shouldn't be a non-investigation. That's where they're messing up. Right. So did you have any contact with your mom or your grandmom at this point? Was it was there at any? At this point? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually got contact with my dad right now, my mom and my grandma. I, no, no, no. no. Um, I mean, before when this was all happening to you. Oh, when I got choked? Yeah. No. Um, at that point, I was really anti-family. So everybody wanted me to move back with my grandma. And my, I'm sorry, my mother, everybody, the, the lawyers, 
the social worker, everybody was like, she's been rehabilitated. She's went to therapy. She's went to classes, you know, uh, go back with her. She's already done all the steps. But I know my mother, you know, just because she did all these steps didn't mean anything, to be honest. She's manipul- she know- she's a manipulator. Even I could do all them steps and I would it would even change me. Like, literally, it wouldn't even change me because I know how to manipulate the system to say yes. Okay, yeah, okay, I agree. But in reality, I don't agree to none of that. So in the midst of all that, I knew my mother, what happened and how I was stressed out, paying rent, how she was pushing me to be somebody I wasn't. You know what I mean? So I was just like, no, I ain't going home. So I just went to another foster home. But fast forward into the future, I went into a foster home that moved me back with my grandma, right? When I moved back with my grandma, because, you know, uh, you can your grandparents can also take you in as a foster kid and get paid for it. That's right. It's so called kinship care. Grandma, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So when I moved back with my grandma, um, I thought I was safe. I didn't think my mom would come back around. But then, boom, she came right back in the house. That was extremely traumatizing. I don't think I even told my social worker for a long time because I, be- I don't remember exactly why I went back to foster care. But I think I just told my social worker my mom was there and they just put me back in foster care or something. So um, I suggest anybody who goes through that, don't be quiet. Just because the people that are telling you to be quiet, telling you to be quiet, whether it's a foster home, whether it's your actual family, you have rights. Speak up. It's the only way you're going to be helped. Whether you even, even if you're over the age 18, you still have a court system that supports you. But yeah, that's what happened. Okay. I went back home yeah. and then they... They put me back in foster care, I think, because of that same reason. Did you have any good foster homes? Did you did you feel like you were cared for or loved or looked after in any of them? Dang, man, that's a deep question. No. Um, I had a favorite foster home, but they had bed bugs. They didn't really feed us. They gave us our allowance, though. <laughs> but um, it was around this. I was li- The first blunt I ever smoked was in this foster home. <laughs> I used to hang out with people with 60, from 60s that were Crips. So... I have a favorite foster home, but I don't have a safe foster home. Mm-hmm. Even um, Vista Del Mar, which was uh, rated the top group home in California, maybe the United States at that time, I think. Not right now, but at that time, maybe. They told everybody I don't take showers, but in reality, I didn't take showers at nighttime or I didn't take showers in the daytime or something. It was one of the two, but they had a group about this and they told everybody that. So I almost got jumped by like five boys because they wanted to force me to take showers, but I was already taking showers. They didn't have to tell her that wasn't no group conversation. So honestly, I don't know. I had a few good foster homes, but there was always something that was bad about it. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. And you, you said to me when we spoke on the phone that you saw some really bad stuff happen too. Yes, definitely. Um, there's this boy, right? There was this boy who was raped. So he had a, he had a history of raping boys. There was this new boy that just became a foster kid. I think he was like two years in. The other boy, he was a lifer. He was a he was a baby when he got in foster care. The new, other guy was a new guy. And um, he victimized the other kid because he was victimized. So he actually raped this kid because he was raped in the past. I'm just saying that because I was this guy's therapist. The guy that got raped, he told me all of this. And I used to be therapist for a lot of foster kids because therapists are horrible in foster. They dropped me. And, like, I needed therapy. They was like, no, nah, you good. I was like, because I have coping strategies. I was suicidal. But um, I even went to an insane asylum. But, yeah, I've seen a kid that got raped because another kid got raped. So then he was, like, what is it called? Trauma building, I think it's called. Yeah, but it's also, it's when the victim becomes the victimizer. So it's, Victimizer, yeah, it is. Yeah, it just gets repeated. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. And um, so you aged out at 18. What happened? Yeah. I aged out at 18 and I became the AB112, I think it's called AB12. Yeah. Yep. AB12. Uh, AB12. Yeah, AB12 youth. And um, I started staying with my grandma again. And they was paying me to go to school or to go to um, have a job. I didn't have a job or go to school, to be honest with you. I played the system as well. Like I said, my mom was good at playing the system. I'm her son. I That's right. The you got skills, right? Uh-huh. They, they threatened to take it away from me eventually. But um, what I told them was, I'll just get my GED. They was like, we'll give you a year to get your GED. I got my GED in a month, so. Yeah, that's what I did. Right, so you had and 11 months like free where you could just like hang and, and, and do what you wanted. No, I didn't get a job after that or nothing. Once I got, they had nothing to say. Once I got my GED and they was threatening me with dropping me, you know, and all that, and I got it in one month. And I told them in the room, too, before I got it, watch this, I'm going to get it in a month. You Then you ain't going to say nothing, right? Well, ain't no way you're getting it in a month, but we ain't going to say that I got it in a month. And they couldn't say nothing because I, I kept bringing it up. I was like. Well, I got my GED in a month. You said it like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. So I never got a job, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 24. So I think 21 at that time. Yeah, it was 21. I turned 21 and they stopped giving me. Right. So then, so then when you were 21, what did you do? Did you, did you have any... I mean, at this time, right, I mean, you're super talented in so many ways, obviously really, really smart, resourceful, you know how to work the system, all those things you said, but you also have a lot of other talents. So how, how did that get developed if, if you were never in a good situation? Well, okay, well, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story after that. So I had that place. They stopped giving me money at 21, right? I got the place with a girl. Me and her Ben broke up, so I actually lost the place. I couldn't pay rent no more. I got some roommates. They they bailed on me. Boom. I had to move back with my grandma. And my grandma, my mom wanted me to. Then I was with my mom and my grandma for about a year or something like that. They wanted me to move too, but then they got a restraining order. You get what I'm saying? So I actually had to go homeless. Yeah, they got a restraining order. The sheriffs came, gave me the paperwork. They gave me a restraining order because I was like, give me a 30-day notice. They was like, no, we need you to go today. I was like, 30-day notice and I'll be out. But they was like, no, we need. we said today. So then they, the sheriff, they, told, they said something to the sheriff about me being aggressive. And the sheriff took that as violence. And then they got a, they got a, um, I didn't know I could have went to the lawyer's building and got that whole restraining order dropped. So instead I was just homeless. So, um, I moved, I went to jail because, um, somebody actually, let me stop skipping part of my story. After they got, after the sheriffs came, gave me the restraining order, I was in Hollywood. My old blood OG I used to have. He calls me up and he's like, you don't have to be homeless. Come stay with me. So I go to his house. He, um, the first night he, he does some homosexual stuff to me in my sleep. He actually molested me in my sleep. So I smoke some weed. He does crystal meth. I pass out, right? He's still awake. When I, I wake up in the middle of my sleep, he's like creeping up my leg from the other side. Luckily he wasn't right next to me. He was like facing me for some reason. I think that was a crystal meth, but he was like facing me. And then I woke up, right? And I'm like, what the fuck you doing? And I stand up. He's like, oh, I thought you was. I'm like, what the fuck? And I start punching on it. Well, I, I run outside because he gave me some brand new Jordans. 
I'm like, bro, you can take these shoes back because I'm not your sugar baby. Like, now it's getting weird, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I go to the track. They, they say, I'm like, where are my shoes at? Where are my shoes at? They're like, we threw your shoes away because they stink. My feet used to stink, you know what I mean? So they threw my shoes away. And I went to the trash can. My freaking hat fell into the trash can. I was like, you know what? I'm just pissed at this point. So I wake up the whole neighborhood, right? I wake up the entire neighborhood. He comes outside. I start beating him up. He's too big or whatever, so I just injure his leg a little bit. He limps to this day, supposedly, but I um beat up his leg. The LAPD comes. They put me in handcuffs because, obviously, I'm the crazy one. You know, he's the victim right now because I, I don't care. I'm trying to fight the neighbors. So um, the cops take me to L.A. Mission because I tell them I just got molested in my sleep. So they didn't want to take me to jail. Instead, they took pictures of me and stuff, but then they just took me to the L.A. Mission. I left the L.A. Mission. I went right back to him. Because I wanted to kill him at this point. Like, I was still enraged. Because, you know, I'm a straight male getting molested by another straight male. Like, I'd rather you die in that moment. You know, I'm not a woman. Women, sadly, women don't have the um, ability to attack a man equally. You know what I mean? I feel bad for him because, like, in that moment, I had the ability to attack him. But what he did, when I came back, I actually um, came back and fell asleep in his alley, woke up at 8 in the morning and started screaming at it at the window, right? They came outside with a hammer, but I can't really like run at weapons, so I just kind of like put the weapon down. I want to fight. <laughs> he went back in the house. He came out with a pistol, right? When he came out with the pistol, I was like, okay, okay, you win. I just left. When I left, um, I was like, you know what? I'm about to call the police. I'm snitching. You know what I mean? I'm about to be a snitch because he molested me and I can't hurt him, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put him in jail. So I went to my grandma's house because um, in the midst of that first fight when I hurt his leg or whatever, I actually stepped on my phone and broke my phone. So um, I went to my grandma's house because you, I was in the in a crip neighbor. I was in a blood neighborhood, either blood or crip. It was the 88s. So wherever the 88s are, it was a blood or crip neighborhood. You can't just ask people to use their phone and then call the police. Yeah. Like they're going to tell you, get the fuck off my, they might start punching on you with, your, with, your, with their phone in your hand, you know? So um, I try to go to the only people I knew in LA that I knew their address by heart. You know, cell phones got us by hold right now. So I went to my grandma's house, knocked on their door like, look, I'm not trying to come inside. Can you call the LAPD for me? Because I don't have a phone. They're like, call you. My mom comes to the door call your dad. I'm like, what? Call the cops. I'm not trying to go live. I'm not trying to move back in. Like I'm trying to put this man in jail, you know? And then, um, so they're like, they're not going to call the cops for me. They're like, we're going to call your dad. So I start going to my grandma's window and I'm like, call the cops. I'm not leaving at this point. At this point I was emotional because of my family just put me out in the streets. A guy just molested me. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to ask you to call the cops. You're not even calling the cops for me. Instead, you're threatening to call the cops on me. So I didn't care at this point. I'm like, you know what? Do it then. Do it. So they called the cops. I went to jail for 200 days. Well, sorry, 100 days because they give you half of the sentence or whatever. So I was in jail for about three months. Once I got out of jail, I was homeless. My friend in jail said I could stay with him because we rode, we rode together. We finessed together. So I stayed with him. He was finessing, right? I was breaking the law. But God was always in my ear like, uh-huh, yeah, you sent him, but I'm, I'm about to get you out of this. So Wait a minute, hold, hold, hold. So what is finessing? What do you mean? Like he's like- Finessing, so I'm going to explain. Finessing is basically a jug. A jug is basically a, a way of making money illegally, but it has a structure to it. So you do it repeatedly. Selling drugs is not a jug. It's, it's a jug, but not a finesse, okay? A finesse is more corporate. So what we was doing, 
what we was going was going to Starbucks and we was stalling them out with their gift cards. So it wasn't even illegal. Most time finesses are illegal, but at that time it wasn't illegal. They just made it illegal. Now it's burglary, but it wasn't a burglary at the time. But they had a they had this glitch in their system, just like banks do it. So what banks do is they they make fake money, but it's digital fake money. So they they take one dollar bill and they make it two dollar bills, but it's only one dollar bill technically. So what we was doing was we was using it, we was giving them the gift card, like put a hundred dollars on his gift card, right? And then now there's a hundred dollars that don't exist. They're just loading up a hundred dollars I never paid for. But somebody else somewhere else will catch that hundred dollars that they loaded up on that gift card that was never paid for. And then now we have a real gift card that has value to it, has a hundred dollar value to it, and we'll cash out that hundred dollars which was a longer process. Wow. Anyway, that, wow. Yeah, that was our finesse. So I used to finesse with these guys um, right when I got out of jail. And I already gave up the finesse, but like, you know, when you, uh, when you get out of jail and you have nowhere else to go, you kind of got to do what they say. So I was, I was kind of finessing when I was not in jail, but then I kind of wasn't. But now that I got out of jail and I was living with these people, it was like a requirement. We was finessing every single day, right? But, you know, God woke me up told me, like, you need to stop doing this. So I listen, but the crazy part about your friends is that they're fake sometimes. Just like I said, I used to finesse with these people. I was good at being an actor. Like I told you, my mom, with that script, yep. I used to read from the script. I created a script for the finesse. So I used to tell people I had an office. I have a photography company, so I used to use a photography company as a thing. You know what I mean? So I made my own script. I was really good at it. And nobody else who was finessing had a script i was i think i was the only one in california that was doing it that well so he used to use me for that so once i said i was done he started acting extremely fake he started saying oh my girl doesn't want you here oh i want to i want to sleep naked tonight it's like bro you wasn't doing this a week ago <laughs> or a month ago or none of that so um he started making me sleep in my car until eventually he cheated on his girlfriend and supposedly his girlfriend blamed me even though i told him not to cheat I told him that his girlfriend was going to come home. His girlfriend supposedly blamed me and said I couldn't stay there no more, which was all a lie. Eventually, his girl said, nah, he was just using her as a ruse to get me out the house because I wasn't finessing no more. So as I was sleeping in my car, this is how we stopped being friends because I had a photography business. He was holding my camera, my laptop and everything. And I was like, give me back my camera and laptop because I'm about to make $20. I haven't made money in months. You know, I'm sleeping in a car and I haven't made no money. He was holding my equipment. I had to call him out of his name to make him want to fight me to give me back my equipment. At that point, we was no longer friends. So now I'm just homeless. I stay with another friend who was in that uh, group of finessers. He kicks me out because I don't want to give him $30 worth of EBT. So this is all broke problems, right? Yep. I don't give him $30 EBT. So he's like, my girl got to eat. I'm like, bro, I'm not trying to live. I'm not trying to be hungry because y'all want to keep wasting y'all money. I'm about to use my money to the month's end. So he kicked me out too, right? So now I'm just homeless with nobody helping me. So one of my friends who um she's a les she's a lesbian and she's a um I want to use the right word, um a, a stud. Is that the right word? I'm not sure, but I think I get an idea of what you mean. I don't want to use the wrong word, so I'm sorry if I offend anybody, but um she's a stud. And she said, "You're a rapper, right? Do you want to be a? a you, you should get into. We did a movie together as well. She played a, um, a girl trying to get her mom back, and her mom was like a Christian. It was a great script. We wrote it together. So she knew I was very artistic, and she knew I was a rapper and singer. She's like, I know you rapper and sing. Do you want to do animation? 
So I'm like, yeah. So um, this is how I got into the Better Youth. Yeah, Better it's Youth. Better youth. Mm-hmm. So I got into that program, the animation cohort, and I was the first person to finish. So they was like, oh, okay, you seem pretty smart. You know, have you ever thought about video editing? They were saying they needed a video editor. So they gave me a career. They gave me, they helped me learn, and they gave me equipment. So I um, learned how to become a video editor. We started doing stuff with Urban League. I worked with Disney. Sorry, Di- Better Youth is Disney to me. Yeah. So I worked with Disney. <laughs> I worked with Adobe, you know, stuff like that. Wow. And so you, you've really landed on your feet, too. And Lionsgate. Yeah, I forgot. There's way bigger things. That's than right. That. Lionsgate, yeah, my- Lionsgate and Disney. And it's all through Better Youth, right? All through Better Youth, yeah. But your talent, yeah. too, your talent and your drive. That's a huge part of it, right, Jeremy? Right. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the endurance of foster care has made me, it's, it's not really always the talent. You know, Hollywood, they'll say it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know what I mean? It's really the pressure I put in the moments that I was home, when I was homeless, trying to get a place, before I got a place to stay, basically, I put a lot of pressure on it. I, I would, every single day, if it was free work, but it involved the correct people who can get me into the right room. I was there on time in 30 minutes to an hour early waiting with a smile like, oh, y'all not here yet. OK, I'm in front, you know, and I, and it was I was thirsty. You know, I think that anybody who wants to make it needs to be thirsty. You don't know how to you don't even have to be an editor. I wasn't even an editor. I wasn't even an animator. You know what I mean? But the person that seen that I was a rapper and a singer, they seen I was thirsty and they seen I I will put on that pressure. They see I would show up on time. When we made the movie, I showed up on time and I always had something to say. I always had input. You also want to have input. You don't want to be the person with a shadow. You're just a shadow in the corner. You want to be the person that has to be a spotlight sometimes. Sometimes it's uncomfortable though. I could definitely say I've been uncomfortable multiple times just speaking my piece. But every single time I was uncomfortable, even like I'll say a week ago, They've always thanked me for my input and said I was needed. So that's it wasn't really the talent. The talent was was um, obtained, actually, like me being a very good editor and how I'm under the 700 union and I got into Lionsgate. You know, I had to put uh, some time in. I had to put some dedication and work in. I'd show up at the um, join programs that had um, commitments to them. You know, you got to show up every twice a week. You got to show up and you got to be on time and they'll drop you if you don't if you late all the time, they'll stop inviting you, like stuff like that. Right. So you showed up. So what, how do you credit that? Like how, what does that, what does that come from, Jeremy? The credit of showing up, you know, I believed faith. I think I I had a lot of, since I've been home, I didn't have jewelry, right? Right now I'm wearing like $10,000 worth of jewelry. When I was homeless, I told myself and God, right? I told God, I, I actually, I wanted to rob people. I'm going to keep it frank. I wanted to steal from people. I wanted to, I seen like weak looking people with like jewelry on and I wanted to snatch it off their necks. And I didn't want to go to the pawn shop. Okay. I wanted to wear their jewelry as a homeless man. Mm-hmm. So I told God like, look, I'm not going to steal from these people, but I need you to give me jewelry. But besides the faith part of it, besides the religious part of it, I had to keep my faith and I had to have hope that it would happen. And I had to walk towards that hope, the direction of hope, because at one point of homelessness, because I had weekdays, you know what I mean? I had a decision to make. And I remember that day like it was yesterday. I had to either become a meth addict, go crazy, you know, find other ways to deal with my depression, or I had to stay on this path of hope 
of faith to believe that I was going to have a place to stay, that I was going to have diamonds on, on every single finger. I had to have hope and faith that it was going to happen. That's what made me show up for free. Okay, I used to show up for free and be the most proficient worker and other people was getting paid. I had the faith that they was going to be paying me soon and I was going to have employees, which happened. Wow, you're, wow. Um... Oh, and also, also besides faith and hope, because somebody was telling me to have faith and hope. There was somebody in my ear saying have faith and hope as well. Eventually, once I got done building myself up mentally and, and able to basically say no to myself on things, like I'm not going to become a meth addict. I'm not going to be doing all that. I had to get mentors. So once I fixed myself mentally, I had to go get mentors because you need somebody telling you not to give up. I wanted to be homeless, okay? I wanted a two-bedroom apartment. Yes, I live in a studio right now, but at least I have a place to stay. You know, I told myself I'm not going to get a place to stay until I can get a job that gives me $2,000 a month. And, you know, I got an apartment that's two-bedroom where I want to stay, which I would have still been homeless probably to this day. You know what I mean? I would never got to Lionsgate because then I'm too dirty to go to work. Like, literally, nobody wants to go to work with a dirt bag. It just smells bad. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I needed needed somebody (laughs) in my ear... (laughs) To tell me that no, Jeremy, we're about to. This is what my mentor told me. She said they said they was going to drop me, and she had to apologize because it was actually rude. She says if I don't get a place to stay by next week, when she was lying, that they're going to um, stop working with me. That's what they told me. This is before we went to Disney. We went to Disneyland, right? Man, it took about two weeks before I got a place to stay. But she had to scare me because they was you know I was I went to Disney um studios I went to all this so they was doing all these cool stuff I didn't want to lose it you know what I mean so she had to scare me to to get me in a better place and yes we are very stern as foster kids but you know you're not going to like it but you know if you got if you choose this person as your mentor learn to listen learn to listen and learn to change you know it's you can never stay the same yeah hip hop media all that kind of stuff says never change trust me any old person you talk to is going to let you know they changed. Any successful person you talk to, whether they're young, I mean, a seven-year-old that has been, because you know the seven-year-old made his own website or whatever. Even he changed. He was a little kid. <laughs> this is a little seven-year-old that made a website, got a million dollars off of some stupid website. He changed. So if you, if you, everybody changes that's successful. That is, that's just a fact. Right. So that's your advice to people that you got to grow and change. That's the only way you make things better. You got to grow and you got to change and you got to have sound doctrine. Okay, you got to have sound philosophy, have the right kind of mentor, don't have the wrong kind of philosophy. Like my finesser friends who who now they work at Taco Bell, the finesse is up. Okay, <laughs> the finesse is over. They work at Taco Bell. They are always, they, you know, they, they have to give up their jury. You know, I didn't even have jury when I was finessing either. The money was coming. Because I was making a thousand dollars a day. Imagine making a thousand dollars a day. And then the next day you still got a zero dollars. 30 days straight because I had bad philosophy in my ear. I had bad doctrine in my ear. I had bad mentorship. He was my mentor, my friend. So, yeah. Okay, I want to ask you one last question that I ask all my guests, and I know you can dig deep for this. What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Mm. Oh my God. You know, it's crazy. I don't have to dig deep, but it's because the times we live in, right? 
Every time I tell this, I don't mean to be, I don't even mean to, I don't mean to be religious, but every time I tell everybody I'm Christian, it just blows their mind. Like I'm wearing all black right now, like as you see me, but I usually wear rainbows. Like I love wearing red, blue, and green at the same time. Those three colors just pop. Um, Every time I tell somebody I'm a Christian that don't know me, like their eyes open up. They're like, really? Why? And I'll be like, what? You know, but for some reason, if I don't open my mouth, I don't seem Christian. I think that's the only thing. Yeah. Or wait, there might be another thing. If I never open my mouth and I never say anything, people won't see me as intelligent. I've, I've caught that too. Like when I start talking about science and history and philosophy and I guess intelligent stuff, they'd be like, oh, okay. I didn't see that in you. Like, yeah, I love history. Let's talk about history. <laughs> right. So you surprise people. By your intelligence and all, also by the depth of your faith. Yeah, th- yeah, those two things. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can really see that, especially about the faith. I mean, I knew you were intelligent anyway. I could just, I could see because you really look like an artist who wouldn't really care about the confines of the church or Christianity. Right, right. But actually, you are really deeply inside. You. I am so dedicated. Like right now, I'm most likely retiring in January from all entertainment like I'm, i know i'm a successful entertainer i've gotten to the union you know I'm, i've done my thing but i'm thinking about using all my talents to become an evangelist so that really surprises people they're like why would you do that i'm like all them evangelists getting beat up i think i'm that guy it sounds fun to me i don't know wow wow <laughs> so that's that's your next change that's the next- yeah in january that's that's when it's gonna start that's the next evolution of Jeremy. Right. Wow. Okay. Still I'll- making music for it, still making movies, you know, still going to make content, still making comedy, but it's just going to, even memes, you know, but it's just going to be all centered around that. Because, like, I got fired from Lionsgate. Not sorry, I got let go because they had a different show and I didn't get put on to the next show. They had a whole career for me. But I didn't take the vaccine, sadly, not to get political, but I didn't take the vaccine. But I worked really hard. You know, I was on time. I what do you need, sir? You know, but that, that got me fired. And then I was working at this bank called Change Mortgage, which is the number one mortgage company in America. They fired me because I didn't want to research uh, Kwanzaa and Hanukkah. I would have did the videos, but I didn't want to research the videos because I wasn't my job. One, two, that was the line that I couldn't cross. Right. It's called a Rubicon. It's that river you will not cross or that essentially changes everything. You were like, that's it. Yeah, so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go be a welder, but I'm going to use all these talents. (laughs) (laughs) You're like a cat with like 99 (laughs) lives, not even nine lives, but like nine lives, a 99 (laughs) lives. So, okay, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? I mean, this has been very deep, but also entertaining. Definitely definitely something I want to tell our listeners. Don't give up. Life can get hard. Everything can seem like you're going to be something that you're just not. Like, especially as a foster kid, I notice a lot of, and I'm speaking to the women on this one, because a lot of female foster kids are drawn into a lifestyle because of other influences, whether it's the foster parent, the foster kid, um, your friends at school, people in the streets, pimps. You know what I mean? They think that you're weak because what you, don't listen to them. You're not weak because of none of that. They're going to always feed something in your head. I've been... I've had lectures told to me about how I'm going to be a crackhead or how I'm about to be robbing houses with somebody. Um, The Bloods, 
when I was my my first actual foster home, not the temporary one that we talked about, but literally the next foster home that I was supposed to be there permanently or whatever, I used to ditch middle school. And uh, these bloods came up to this uh, library when I was waiting to open or whatever. They just jumped me, right? And they just put me on. They gave me a name and everything. But like I said, don't listen to people that think they can tell you how to live your life. I told those bloods at 13 years old, y'all don't pay enough because I was crying because it did hurt. I was like, y'all don't pay enough. No, no. (laughs) Stand your ground. If you want to be something in life, whether it's even astronomics, whatever you want to do, do it. Follow your path. Don't let outside influences affect you because they're not going to be around. Like right now, nobody's around that was telling me I was going to be anything. None of them. Nobody knew I was going to be an editor. There's not one person that knew I was going to have a media company. Not one. So stand your ground. Stand your ground on what you want to do in life because you will do it. Thank you, Mr. Jeremy Buchanan. Or should I, I guess maybe I'll start calling you Reverend. I don't know. Do, are you going to get ordained or something? Like, like they what? Try, You know what's crazy? They actually try to ordain me as a preacher. Really? But I'm so biblical. I had to tell them in the Bible, it says you got to be married. So no, I'm not married yet. So not a, not a preacher. Or you can just call me water. I water. Like call water. The water. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's from your email, right? I like that. Okay, thank you, sir. It's been really, really great speaking with you. And this is going to be a great episode. You're a force of nature. I'm sure you've heard that. Thank you. No, I haven't actually. You haven't heard that? Wow. A force of nature. That's awesome. I've told somebody that. Okay, cool. All right, sir. You take care. Okay. You take care. Thank you, Jeremy, for sharing your story with us. It's really incredible what you've been through and how much you've accomplished. And good luck with your future endeavors. If you'd like to hear Jeremy's music, you can find it on Spotify. His new release is Out of Focus under the artist's name, Turn Up Water. Thanks again, Jeremy. Our next guest is Paul Fries. His career includes 25 years as a legal aid attorney, developing programs to prevent and end homelessness and to protect and engage our most isolated and vulnerable youth. Those experiencing homelessness, immigration distress, foster care, and justice-involved youth. Paul currently serves on the board of directors for the Children's Law Center, whose attorneys represent youth independency proceedings. The advisory board of Angel's Nest TLP, a transformative housing nonprofit for former foster youth. He also works with simplyfriends.org and the Human Trafficking Legal Network. Join us next week for Paul Fries. Thank you for listening and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, Contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposto. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us 
and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.